Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I'm rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Hang on. Didn't you kill that kid? That's a bit of a misdeed, wouldn't you say? You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas, and I'm a young, ambitious academic with ideas beyond the scope of his ability. I'm Christian, and actually, Christian is the name of the doctor, not the monster. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, actually, you you are a doctor, PhD, so well done. I guess I'm the monster then. We are talking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a classic of so many things, really. It is often called a romantic novel, sort of dark romanticism. It's called a gothic novel or a proto-gothic novel. People see it as one of the first science fiction texts or as one of the first horror novels. So a lot of things in one book. It has given us another one of those iconic characters. Whether you are talking about the monster or the mad scientist is debatable, but both have entered the pop cultural canon in a variety of different guises. I would say, even if you haven't read Frankenstein, you know what it is about. Everyone knows, basically. Frankenstein starts out in the Arctic with the letters of an Arctic explorer named Walton, who recounts how he met a strange man out there in the cold wilderness. This man turns out to be Victor Frankenstein, a Swiss scientist who tells Walton his story. Frankenstein was a young, ambitious, but also arrogant scientist who grew up in a happy family, in love with his cousin, but who was filled with scientific ambition. He really wanted to test the limits of what was possible. In his explorations and in his experiments, he finally managed the unthinkable creating a body out of different parts of dead bodies and animals, he actually animates that body. He has created life. However, struck with terror by the sight of this creature, he basically runs away and tries not to think about what he's done. He lives on his life, but then horrible things happen to him. And it, as it turns out, it is his creature that has come to haunt him, to take revenge for being abandoned by its creator. Now it's the monster's time to tell its story, how gained consciousness, how it learned reading, and how, because of its hideous look, it was shunned by other people. Only a, a blind person could really connect with it. And because of that, the monster has a wish, no, a demand for Frankenstein. He should make another creature, a companion for the monster. Otherwise, the revenge will not stop. And, spoilers, it doesn't stop. Mary Shelley was born in 1797 as the daughter of William Godwin, a philosopher, and Mary Wollstonecraft, a philosopher and writer in her own right, who most famously published a Vindication of the Rights of Women. Unfortunately, Mary Wollstonecraft died just a couple of days after giving birth to Mary Shelley due to complications in the birth. Mary met Percy Shelley, a married poet, 
when she was just 16, he fell in love with her, abandoned his wife for her, and they spent the year 1815 and 1816 traveling through Europe. There at Lake Geneva in a holiday house, which they shared with Lord Byron and his personal physician, they spent a dreary summer because of 1816 known as the year without a summer due to a volcanic eruption, had very cold and rainy weather in the summer months. So instead of going out and exploring the Alps as they had intended, they sat around the fire and told scary stories. Lord Byron challenged everyone to come up with a ghost story of their own, and based on a nightmare that she had of this scientist who created a hideous creature and turned from it in horror, Shelley started developing this story, partly based on discussions that Shelley and Byron had had about recent experiments with galvanic cells and the reanimation or seeming reanimation of dead tissue through electric currents. The novel was published shortly afterwards, in 1818, but she wrote it when she was 19 years old, so let that sink in, everyone. Uh, what had you achieved by the age of 19? It was later revised and published in an updated edition in 1831, which is the one that most people read today, where Shelley changed some things and also included a long prologue, which tells the story of how the book was conceived. And I think partly Frankenstein, therefore, seems very apt to read at the end of the year 2020, doesn't it? We were talking about this already in our episode on the yellow wallpaper. We're all sitting inside, can't really do anything except stare at the wall and go crazy. And, well, at least we're lucky enough to sit around our virtual hearths, snuggle up with this scary book. At least we don't have to snuggle up with Lord Byron. I think I would have had to kill myself if I had to spend a dreary summer in a holiday home with that guy. Definitely. Christian, I would like to talk about science. Science! Yes, science! Because this is obviously one of the big topics of the book, in her preface from the 1831 editions, Shelley identifies this story as a story about an ambitious scientist who goes too far in his pursuit of greatness and glory. And also, this is what sort of ties together the frame narrative of the Arctic explorer and Frankenstein, because inspired by Frankenstein's horrific tale of going too far, the explorer realizes that he himself is also going too far and gives in to his crew's demands that they should turn back before they are crushed by the ice. So, on the one hand, this is identified by the author as a major topic. But what do you think? Is this book pro-science or anti-science? This is really an interesting question. And I think the answer, as so many things about Frankenstein, is not as obvious. I mean, obviously, Frankenstein as a term really is used nowadays, especially for the kind of irresponsible scientists, the mad scientists that go too far. Whenever GMOs are discussed, people call them Frankenfoods. Exactly. Genetic splicing, vaccinations, a very topical thing indeed. All these things are always kind of tagged with the warning, oh, oh, this, this should not lead to a Frankenstein scenario. There are limits to what humans are supposed to do, etc., etc. So at first glance, that seems to be a rather negative portrayal, or at least a portrayal of science as something that has limits and that can lead to horrific consequences for humanity in general. I think the problem that... Shelley identifies in the novel, though, is not so much science in itself or inherently, but rather it is ambition, because this is a really big topic of the Romantic era, this 
drive for greatness, this ambition, and whether that manifests in creating life as a scientist or whether that manifests as uh, joining a revolution in Greece that is doomed and getting shot to death like her friend Byron did. Uh, ambition can be dangerous and can go too far. So maybe it's just incidental that Frankenstein is a scientist. He could just as well have been a soldier. I don't think entirely. On the one hand, you're absolutely right. The whole topic of ambition, of fighting against the universe, that is extremely romantic, that is extremely Byronic, you might say, and the kind of hopelessness of this makes it more heroic. There is a reason why the subtitle of the novel is The Modern Prometheus, just like Prometheus kind of stealing fire from the gods and being punished for it. Frankenstein can, at least theoretically, also be seen as a heroic figure, as someone who dares do what others don't do, even if he is punished or even if he fails in the end. But I think what makes Frankenstein more than just a romantic novel, there is a reason why this is the kind of beginning of science fiction, that Mary Shelley manages to basically think ahead. The science itself is, of course, fantastic to a certain degree, but it is based on, like you mentioned, experiments that were going on at the time and she's thinking ahead to what that might lead to and this is exactly what science fiction usually boils down to this kind of taking the current development the current status of society and kind of thinking ahead what would that be like if certain developments go in a certain direction Though there I would disagree because I think even though to some extent as you said gene splicing gmos all those things are sort of reminiscent of Frankenstein, there is a really big thing that Shelley misses in her portrayal of science as maybe a dangerous thing that can go too far. Because she only talks about this ambition for glory. Victor Frankenstein at one point says that he wants to be admired by the beings that he creates. And what she completely misses out is greed. I was thinking about this because in the frame narrative, the Arctic Explorer, he's actually looking for the Northwest Passage. So a passage to the north of Canada, going from the Atlantic to the Pacific, which is possible now because of all the things that we have done to the planet and because of all the warming that we have inflicted upon it and the horrors that that is going to bring. And that was not done for glory. Uh, People weren't burning fossil fuels because it made them feel great. This was done for profit. And I think that's (laughs) just... I think Mary Shelley is just way too optimistic about human nature. That is maybe true, though calling her optimistic is, uh, I think, the only time you could actually say that, considering how humans are portrayed in the novel, at least. They suck, but they suck even more than she says. <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think it shouldn't be overstated. It, this is not some sort of, of, of prophecy. There are certain aspects that can still be applied to the advances of modern technology. A lot of the book, however, is still rooted in the Romantic tradition. The description of the sublime landscapes in Switzerland or in Scotland, for example, uh, where the monster usually encounters its creator, that is something that is more in the tradition of the Gothic novel. But I think that is actually something that is interesting, that these kind of romantic depictions of nature are to a certain degree um, contrasted with the unnaturalness of the monster. And a lot about the novel is obviously this question of nature versus nurture. Is the monster evil because it was shunned by society? Is it evil because it's an unnatural creation? It doesn't really give an answer. And also this contrast of 
the wonderful landscapes of nature and the kind of more morbid nature of science as obvious as it seems at first glance it's not really answered in the end so christian on science we have a kind of ambiguous portrayal which facet of the novel did you find particularly interesting there are a lot of facets that i thought about talking but there is something that is often a very common reading of the gothic in general and i think it can be applied to frankenstein as well in a very interesting way and let me preface that with a caveat that maybe two cishet guys are not the best people to apply this reading but we'll try to handle it with as much care as possible and that is the queerness again maybe don't listen to the cishet guys but listen to the many queer artists that have been inspired by the story um, there's a very good article in the new york times for example that kind of shows how the depiction of the monster and the relationship between creature and creator has echoed with a lot of queer artists. Victor seems to be outwardly this respectable family man who has a happy life, who has a great career ahead of him, but they, he has this dark secret that he's ashamed of and he tries to hide away this relationship he has with this other, let's say, man. Victor has some sort of stereotypically queer characteristics, you could say. So, for example, you could see his attempt at creating life as a sort of attempt to give birth as the sole creator of a being so that he doesn't need recourse to women. And he seems to dislike women, really. The only woman he seems to like, aside from his dead mother, is his cousin, who basically grew up as his sister, and so he's going to marry her. He has a lot more passion, even if it is the passion of hatred and disgust towards his creature than he has towards Elizabeth, his fiancée. The creature, on the other hand, cannot present himself as this family man, as this normative being. Its monstrous nature is obvious, but on the inside, he's still looking for love. He's looking for acceptance. He's looking for someone who sees him as he is accept him as he is. There's also something about the monstrous nature of the creature and how its body is shaped and remade that has found a lot of acclaim with trans artists. There is something very, very interesting about how you can interpret what seemingly is monstrous, what seemingly is horrible and shunned, and can see some sort of empathy and identity there. I would definitely say that uh, you can read the monster as the protagonist. The monster is presented rather sympathetically. We learn about his struggles. Uh, his I say his because that is how he's identified in the text. And I guess Frankenstein made the creature to be male and then he wants a female companion. Though it's interesting because, you know, really, now maybe that I've got queerness on the mind, I, I'm wondering, hang on. Is it actually male? What does that even mean in the case of a artificial being? Exactly. I, I used uh, the impersonal pronouns there. I called it it. Yeah, which is then again also sort of dehumanizing. And the monster, well, the monster, the creature, the only name that's ever applied to it is Adam, but that's more of sort of a metaphorical, biblical illusion than an actual name. This being uh, is presented rather sympathetically and gets this long passage of a sort of narrative within the narrative within the narrative of explaining how he 
experienced the world and then struggled through it and tried to make connections to others but couldn't. And then, of course, all the horrible violence happens and you wonder, is that justified or is that actually a bit too far? But you could also definitely always read the creature as results of the cruelty of humans. It was created as a sort of blank page and then we inscribed all our cruelty onto it. And so we cannot really blame it for it because it's our own cruelty being reflected back at us. Let's come to the style of the novel because it is a peculiar style. It is this Russian doll of a story almost where we have the story of the Arctic explorer and then Victor Frankenstein tells his story to him. And then within that story, we have the creature telling his story. Don't forget the Lacey story within the creature story. Yes, of course, the story of this poor, unfortunate French family who was banished for uh, helping someone in a prison break. Uh, yeah, that, that really isn't the center of the story, but it is the center of the narrative structure. Why? Why not just tell the story straightforwardly? Once upon a time, there was a scientist, he was crazy, and he created a monster. My answer is obviously because the Gothic. Oh, are you interested in the Gothic? Is that the thing you're into? I've dabbled with it once or twice. I think back when we were discussing Dracula, I mentioned this. Um, in Dracula, you have these uh, different narratives coming together, these documents, the letters or the phonogram recordings and gothic scholars would say that this is showing well this is the fragmented nature of the world there is no one truth there is no order that could somehow rationally explain what's going on no all you have are these accounts that are limited that are fragmented that are colored by emotion and that is what the world is a chaotic and exaggerated place at least the world of the gothic novel. I think we should not just see this as a gothic novel, though, even though it's understandable that you would. I think we also have to talk about romanticism. And I mean romanticism with a capital R here. Shelley is, of course, part of the, the clique of the romantics, you could say, who would be, I don't know, Shelley, Shelley, Byron, Keats. Coleridge, young Wordsworth, not older Wordsworth. I noticed something funny about the year where it's published. Frankenstein is published on the 1st of January, 1818. Jane Austen died in 1817. It's basically like, right, Austen is dead, everyone. Now we do dark, fucked up shit. It's the transition from this sort of nice, lovely, very formal proto-romanticism of Austen and the Regency era to this dark, mysterious romanticism of the second quarter of the 19th century. Yes, I think this is obviously reflected in the general style. Uh, we mentioned that it's sometimes exaggerated. We mentioned how much of a role the description of these sublime landscapes play. Shelley still manages to be rather good at describing the scenes like it's it's not just about the emotions she is actually quite good in painting a picture or really making you see the scenes in in front of your eye and not just as some sort of uh feverish phantasmagoria but actually as an engaging story in the end frankenstein is an immensely influential novel uh, i think one that we're going to think about a lot more as we venture further into this world that ambition science and brash men who don't think about the consequences of their actions have created 
But what is your? What are our highlights and lowlights, or our sublime alpine landscapes, or our strangled children by the lake? Well, my highlight is actually the frame narrative that we talked about, the polar explorer Walton. At first glance, it seems just to be there as some sort of introduction to the story, but there are so many parallels between the ambition of Walton and the ambition of Frankenstein. And where Frankenstein finds a tragic end, uh, Walton kind of seems to learn his lessons and turn back, even though he's not really happy about it. So there is this kind of open-endedness to this. The echoes kind of go beyond the story. And I think in this case, the frame narrative is not just a gimmick. It actually adds something to the story and its themes uh, in general. My highlight is based on my first encounter with the novel, which was as an audiobook, which I listened to when I was way too young, I think I was 10 or 11, and I was especially impressed by the description of how he actually created the creature, how he went to the cemeteries and the charnel houses and the morgues and picked off parts of bodies and melted a pig's skull and stuffed a brain in there and all this very grisly body horror stuff, which is really just about two paragraphs in the book, but they had an immense effect on me and I really liked them. My low light is probably the portrayal of the female characters, which is interesting because we have a female writer who still doesn't really show us Elizabeth or Justine in any sort of interesting light. They're really just damsels in distress that are basically fridge, to use modern parlance, for Frankenstein to have some sort of motivation. Frankenstein is a complex character. The monster is a complex character. Elizabeth is not. And that is unfortunate to a large degree. My lowlight would be the slight edge of pretentiousness that sometimes creeps in. Uh, that is really the only time where you can tell that this was written by a sort of bookish teenager who hung out with other people who were very convinced of their own talent. So, for example the monster finds three books somewhere somewhere in the woods or something, which are Plutarch's Lives, The Sorrows of Young Werther, and Paradise Lost by Milton, which is basically a way of putting a big signpost on, do you get what I'm saying here? He is like the people that these books are about. Isn't this kind of deep, bro? You're just envious because you never managed to read Paradise Lost. Psst, don't, don't. <laughs> This is our highlights and lowlights, which brings us obviously to the question, is it actually worth reading? Is Frankenstein really the classic that will say it is? And yeah, yeah, it is. Yes, of course. It's Frankenstein. Yeah. Read it. It's Frankenstein. I, I don't think there are many other books that have had this much impact that are, despite everything, this timeless and that are simultaneously this much fun to read. It is complex, it is thought-provoking, it is scary. Yeah, it's, it's Frankenstein. Read it. But Christian, if our listeners have already read Frankenstein, what else would you recommend for them? My recommendation is not a book that I'd say is really perfect. I haven't read it in a long time, but I had to think of it when I thought about what to recommend it is a book that deals with also creature, a creation, but not from the perspective of a scientist, but from the perspective of an author. And that is by Brett Easton Ellis, Luna Park. In this book, Brett Easton Ellis basically kind of faces the legacy of 
Patrick Bateman of the anti-hero of American Psycho. In this novel, Patrick Bateman basically seems to come alive and confront his creator, his author. Now, that is very pretentious and navel-gazing. I mean, it's Easton Ellis, it's to be expected. But he still does a great job of writing it disconcerting, sometimes also scary novel about how that feels to be stalked by your own creation. And he also adds some nice touches, like giving himself a fictitious family, a fictitious wife and son um, that makes you really question the autobiographical nature of this already kind of disconcerting book, Lunar Park by Brady Snellis. I would first like to mention Mary Shelley actually did write a novel about uh, being the last survivor of a pandemic called The Last Man, which I haven't read, so I can't recommend it, but uh, it certainly sounds like something relevant to our current day and age. I want to recommend something else, though, because what I find really interesting about Frankenstein now is not so much the creature, even though the creature is very interesting, but I also find the character of Victor Frankenstein very interesting, or Dr. Frankenstein, as he's often called, but he's not actually a doctor, because he never actually graduates. He's only a student at Ingolstadt University. Shout out to Ingolstadt, where my mom grew up. He is actually just a student. He's a, he's an undergrad dropout who creates a horrible abomination that destroys everything. So that made me think of Mark Zuckerberg. At first I thought, though, hang on, though. The monster is only cruel because we inflicted this cruelty upon it. Well, what Zuckerberg did is that he basically cut out the middleman and just allowed us to connect and to directly inflict all this cruelty upon each other. Great! So I would, on the one hand, recommend uh, The Social Network, which is one of the best films of the past one and a half decades, I would say. And it really portrays Zuckerberg as a sort of romantic hero. Not in a positive sense. He is driven by his ambition, his need for glory. Though it does add the greed part, which I was missing in the OG romantics. If you want to look at Zuckerberg through a capital R romantic lens, The Social Network is a good film to go to. But then I would recommend you seek out some of the reporting on what Facebook and Zuckerberg have wrought in recent years, such as the episodes of Behind the Bastard about Mark Zuckerberg and how Facebook facilitated several genocides, genocidal riots in several countries around the world. His creation is far more monstrous than anything Frankenstein ever came up with. But what do you think about Frankenstein? Do you think that it's an overrated piece of trash? In that case, keep that shitty opinion to yourself. But if you still want to haunt us, you can find us on several places on the internet. For example, at Facebook at Outside of a Dog. You can find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. Or you can write us an email at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Patreon, where we will be uploading a special episode for our supporters about the probably most iconic adaptation of this text. Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That's a lot of apostrophes and a lot of ham. So that is at patreon.com slash outside of a dog and of course you can come back here for our 50th episode next time so christian what are we reading for this big milestone we come back to where we started and we started if you remember a long long time ago with modernist poetry we started off with a very long poem the wasteland so this time around we'll try to keep things very 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 brief indeed we're going to read in a station of the metro by Ezra Pound. Okay, that's going to be difficult because 
you're not really supposed to be in public spaces right now, and Paris is pretty far away, but yeah, I guess we can read in the station of the metro. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Do we want to talk about romanticism right now, or should we do that when we talk about style? Okay. We'll never go out of style. Uh, we'll never, ever, ever get back together. <laughs> <laughs>